0: We are live.
1: Hello, and welcome to uh, Connected Learning uh, TV. Uh, we're excited about today's um, webinar and looking forward to uh, a really important and what we think is a timely uh, discussion. So, this is the fourth and final webinar of our May 2015 series titled Equity by Design, a DML uh, 2015 showcase. So, if you're watching this, please take a moment to share it with your networks. I'm Craig Watkins, uh, professor at the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin uh, and also uh, a member of the Connected Learning uh, Research Network. Um, I'll be our host for today and throughout this series on Connected Learning TV uh, we will be shining a spotlight on topics uh, and also speakers uh, from the 2015 DML Digital Media and Learning Conference uh, that's scheduled uh, to be held in Los Angeles uh, in just a few weeks. The conference theme is Equity by Design, the specific dates are June 11th through 13th and uh, again that will be uh, in Los Angeles. You can find the full schedule of events at dml2015.dmlhub.net and today um, we have with us, uh, I'm really excited about um, colleagues that that we have here today. Uh, We'll be talking with and just having a conversation between myself and Ben Kirshner and Rafi Santo and we'll be discussing some of our research um, on the last mile and, and talking about both the transition to and various opportunity. And one of the interesting sort of uh, developments in the Connected Learning Research Network is uh, a few years ago, we started thinking about this question or this concept of the last mile. And while I think some of us are kind of rethinking that term specifically, there still is sort of wide consensus uh, and, and interest in sort of understanding how do we connect a lot of the sort of activities that young people are involved in, be it in the informal learning space, formal learning space, to kind of real-world opportunities, both economic opportunities, social opportunities, and we think importantly uh, civic opportunities as well. And so this will be really kind of the the frame for the discussion today, and we think uh, this discussion anticipates a number of themes uh, that will also be um, kind of spotlighted uh, throughout DML 2015 uh, in just a couple of weeks or so. So today, uh, again, we have with us Ben and Rafi, Uh, and before we get started, um, let me go over just a few quick details uh, just to uh, get us ready uh, for this webinar. To those watching uh, live right now, we welcome your comments and questions, either via the Twitter hashtag, hashtag DMO2015, and hashtag ConnectedLearning, or the Q&A feature that you should see uh, within the video player. We'll do our best to address your questions here in the Google Hangout. So, any questions that you might have, observations, insights, certainly please feel free to share those with us. Before we begin, uh, I'd like to give Ben and Rafi uh, both a chance uh, to introduce themselves. Tell, tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and and projects and work that you're currently involved in. Ben, you want to start? Sure. Uh,
2: hello, everybody. Thanks, Greg. Yeah, my name is Ben Kirshner. I'm at the University of Colorado Boulder. Based in the School of Education. Um, and I'm faculty director for a center we launched here just in 2014 called CU Engage Center for Community Based Learning and Research. Uh, our efforts are to leverage the resources of the university to work collaboratively with uh, community partners to advance uh, kind of research on public questions, especially issues that impact. Uh, communities, uh, whether they be access to higher education or energy use, that sort of thing, really trying to promote collaborations and advance community-based research and learning. Uh, And then I also uh, happen to do research uh, about how young people organize to open up opportunities for access to to education and other issues that affect them in their everyday lives. And I'm a network advisor for the uh, Connected Learning Research Network. I'll turn it over to you, Rafi.
0: Thanks, Ben. Uh, my name is Rafi Santo, and I'm a doctoral candidate at Indiana University, and the project co-lead for uh, something called the Hive Research Lab, which is uh, an embedded research partner of the Hive New York City Learning Network, which is a network of uh, at this point, over eighty uh, informal learning educational organizations, everything uh, from cultural centers and museums and libraries to small nonprofits, and uh, a lot of the work that we do at Hive Research Lab um, focuses, you know, in two areas. One is uh, around uh, the network dynamics and collaborative kind of practices of these organizations, but also uh, more relevant to the conversation today, the uh, youth interest-driven learning pathways around digital media, um, things like uh, how uh, the kind of social support they receive allows them to persist in an interest, um, and the ways that educators can support them uh, as they uh, go on those pathways, so excited to be joining here today. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, I should also mention uh, Julian Septon-Green who's also um, a member of the Connected Learning Resource Network and based um, at the London School of Economics. Uh, he was going to join us today but but other obligations um, prevented him from doing so. But his work is also kind of engaging uh, some of the same kinds of questions that we'll be considering today. Um, and I just want to mention that because I think it's important to note that a lot of the issues that I think will sort of um, Grapple with are global in scope, and um, and how do we think about not only the U.S. context but a broader global world in which we see such rapid transformation happening at a fairly uh, profound level. Um, so, Rapi and, and and Ben, I, I guess you know one way to perhaps start is to think about the um, the broader kind of social, historical, and economic context, which really sort of shapes um, a lot of the the, the issues um, that we're kind of looking to um, engage uh, here uh, today. And specifically, right, this is um, a kind of a reference to uh, this this kind of transition that we're seeing in the broader economy. And this is a transition, of course, that's been in the making for several decades, but this decisive shift from a more industrial sort of goods producing economy to what, may- what many might refer to as a kind of post-industrial kind of information, knowledge-driven uh, kind of economy. Uh, and with that, of course, has come not only kind of occupational change uh, in terms of the the, the kinds of structured forms of opportunity that are available uh, to young people, Uh, but certainly, um, you know, the rise of what what some might refer to as sort of precarious labor, um, the degree to which work is becoming much more flexible, less long-term, less economically um, um, predictable, Uh, and so in that sense, um, you know, young people face a world increasingly marked uh, by by uncertainty. And 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 with this comes, uh, you know, striking uh, degrees of social and economic inequality. Uh, And if you pay attention to the news, a lot of the research is coming out, a lot of the reporting is coming out. Uh, You know, there is uh, kind of increasing evidence, right, that young people are facing not only difficult economic circumstances, but in particular, young people who find themselves on the social and economic kind of civic edges are facing uh, you know, enormous uh, kinds of uh, structured forms of inequality uh, that I think make um, the work that's happening in DML and beyond uh, increasingly timely um, and urgent today. So as we think about this, this broader context, this context of uncertainty, this context of precarity, I'm wondering, uh, Ben and Rafi, you know, how do these issues sort of look to you on the ground in terms of the organizations, the communities, and young people that you're working with?
2: I'll get this started, uh, Rafi, but we don't always need to follow this order. Um, So in general today, I think I'll be speaking from just two different research perspectives or the perspective of two different research uh, projects I'm involved with. One is very much focused on um, youth civic involvement and youth organizing for social change. And the other is more explicitly focused on on new media, arts, and and digital media. Um, But when it comes to the civic domain, Uh, this context of inequality, in my view, is, is very much driving much of the um, kind of the youth activism that we see, particularly in communities of color. And one way I like to think about it is that young people, and particularly uh, low-income young people of color in the United States, since that's really where I've done most of my work, um, face two contradictions that fuel um, the activism and organizing. One contradiction is that um, there's readily available kind of um, and very people understanding the importance of uh, kind of education in this knowledge economy, and frankly, a certain level of kind of sermonizing from the political elites that, you know, people need to finish high school and go to college, and that's kind of how young people are expected to fulfill their civic duty. Um, That uh, combined with the lack of access to higher education and frankly the lack of access to high quality uncontradiction that motivates a great deal of uh, activism by young people in the United States whether that's an effort to dismantle um, the school to jail track in their schools or an effort to create you know higher quality access to college um, and more inclusive access to college so so that's a big one and then the second one that I'll just mention briefly is um, what I often think of as a develop- developmental contradiction which is to say that If we're talking about young people, you know, 14, 15, uh, 16, 17, 18, who um, are capable of, developmentally, really capable of critically interpreting their world and really sharing ideas about how to make it better, but really lack opportunities to have a voice, whether it's in their schools or in their cities and communities. There's, There's just a great deal of age segregation that we see, and that contradiction as well between the readiness and interest in sort of Participating in decisions that affect my life, but the, the 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 lack of kind of integration to those decision-making structures is a second contradiction, and that's that's how I think about this issue a lot when it comes to political activism.
0: Yeah, and in my mind, um, you know, there's a number of really big trends that are important to pay attention to here. Um, you know, one has been well documented, even going back uh, almost numerous decades. Um, you know, and that's something that uh, Jim G, Glinda Hall, and uh, Kevin Leander called the phenomenon of fast capitalism, uh, which we are so embedded in that we often can't even see it. And that's a lot of things related to um, kind of the uh, uh, decline of uh, stable work conditions, the rise of what may be called the precariat uh, that uh, uh, Craig mentioned of, of uh, uh, unstable uh, positions of employment. Um, And and an increasing kind of uh, pressure on individuals to see their work uh, lives as being kind of more entrepreneurial, uh, which in certain respects might be seen as positive, but in a lot of respects is actually about responding to the pressures of um, organizations no longer supporting um, uh, people uh, to have... Uh, lives that uh, give them agency um, by providing economic stability um, and you know speaking to sorry to Ben rather's um, uh, point on contradictions which of course is a scholar uh, contradictions are where it's at um, you know th- there is an interesting thing within the DML space uh, you know when we're talking about this phenomenon at the last mile of uh, the uh, of potentially interpreting uh, the work within the digital media and learning field and the connected learning um, kind of framework as being about connecting young people to say jobs in uh, you know tech fields and and you know DML has always been broader than that the the strong focus on on civic engagement and on ethics and non-new uh, literacies that are really about cultural participation and civic participation rather than just about workforce uh, readiness, which is really the contrast of DML to something like the Partnership for 21st Century Skills, which was very industry-led. Um, kind of leaves us in, in this weird place where uh, you, you think about, you know, kids engaging in things like game design programs or in video production programs in uh, after school or what have you. And, and then you look at the, these actual industries and you know, things like the the, the tech industry, uh, and especially even especially the, the, the gaming industry have, you know, uh, in that case, terrible labor practices. Where they really focus on precarious work. Um, and the tech industry is rife with inequality, both from a gender perspective as well as from uh, you know a race and class perspective. Um, so there is this really um, kind of rough uh, cultural landscape. In which we're working when we think about the issue of uh, of equity and access to opportunity within these
1: realms. No, I think those are are, are both excellent um, and and important points um, and and things I think that we should certainly certainly build upon. Um, and I agree with you you both and and, and Ravi, Ravi your your last point um, that you know this this discussion as we attempt to kind of frame and articulate it. I think we we are very mindful. I think the DML community and, and researchers and practitioners are very careful not approach, approach just from you know, that 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 sector or even that um, that that approach. But but understanding that that what we're trying to get at here in terms of how do we help young people to, to develop right the requisite skills and disposition to really navigate effectively this, this kind of un- uncertainty that they're facing is really m- about more than simply preparing them to get a job that exists today that we all know you know is not likely to exist tomorrow and so that so so the, so the context and the conditions I think um, sort of framing this conversation need need to sort of with that let me um, you know. So one of the things that we oftentimes hear about today, right, is, is that you know young people need skills, right? And, and that, you know, in order to transition into this this world, in order to transition from school to work or or from, from school to, to post secondary education, that there are certain skills that, that are required. And and just sort of thinking about you know your respective work with, with different youth organizations, um, with this network of 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 communities. Uh, Rafi, that are part of the Hive network in New York City reflect. You know, what kinds of skills do you think young people um, should be developing uh, as the world of, of, of work and opportunity uh, continue to be transformed?
0: You know, one, one place I can start off just based on um, research that uh, uh, Dixie Chang, my, my co-lead at Hive Research Lab and my research partner have been engaging in around Youth Pathways Uh, In terms of of skills, which I think, you know, skills and dispositions of young people uh, that I think is important to think about, I'll sort of talk in two areas. One is related to just general, you know, research that's been done on uh, social support and community psychology, Uh, and the second that's a little more tied to the kind of digital context that we work in. Um, That that first space of understanding social support is we really take a perspective that um, long term. What we're trying to do is not just connect you to particular opportunities, whether it's uh, a program or internship or a job or college, but really to enrich their, uh, their social networks, increase their social capital, um, have them develop a rich uh, base of social support upon which they can uh, reliably draw when um, uh, the inevitable kind of precariousness of the social context kind of comes to bear. Um, and you know one of the things that's uh, you know challenging in that is that you know youth, especially from marginalized backgrounds, have very different ways of thinking about um, uh, getting help and orienting towards network of networks of support. Um, so a social psychologist named Barnes who kind of really uh, talks about um, uh, this kind of help seeking orientation and network orientation that uh, certain kids will just naturally gravitate to um, uh, 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 getting access to resources through people that they know, and a lot of kids from under-resourced communities uh, are just not naturally modeled that all the time, or if they are, are often a, a, a finding that they have social networks that are good for helping them get. You know, low-wage temporary jobs, um, and because you know, that's who's in their social network. And so, uh, I think like cultivating a sense of of that network orientation and, and that help-seeking orientation amongst youth is really important. Uh, a, a second thing that I think is really uh, neat that we're finding in our research on on uh, youth pathways and with digital media, especially, is that you know the kind of openly networked nature of these technologies and the production center nature of these practices um means that there's this interesting phenomenon of artifacts playing this important role in unlocking opportunities so a film that a young person makes and puts on youtube is then accessed by you know someone older or even a peer who's like hey i didn't know you did filmmaking um, and suddenly, the youth might even not really have thought of themselves as a filmmaker per se, but suddenly they get positioned by others, that kind of uh, what they call interactive positioning. And then they suddenly have this reflective, it's called reflective positioning, like, oh, I am a, uh, a filmmaker. And then that, uh, those artifacts serve to enforce identities that open up uh, opportunities, very much in a similar way as in professional careers that we have uh, as, as adults, um, that particular say papers we put out there or presentations we make um serve as sort of calling cards, and I think that that phenomenon of digital technology and production oriented technology uh leading to these artifacts that have these weird legs um that potentially open up opportunities and and reinforce identities uh, I think is an important thing to pay attention to here and to have you actually understand that is an important um uh skill to know how to use those to to open up opportunity yeah,
1: d- yeah. If if I could real quickly, um, and then and then Ben, uh, we want to hear from you. Um, you know, Rafi, something that you that you uh, mentioned that I I kind of noted here, which I find kind of striking, provocative, and 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 eye opening, is when we when we tend to think of social capital. You know, we tend to think of social capital, and, and rightly so, I think, as an as an asset or as a resource, right? And 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 social capital and networks become the channels and the circuits through which we gain access to. Uh, you know um, information, uh, you know objects, um, you know resources that we otherwise might not have access to and that, and that of course right, is the value of, of, of social capital, of social network but but talk, you know, also, or at least the cultivation of social capital as a skill, right, and, and, and how do we help young people to, to kind of cultivate Um, you know this repertoire of skills and proficiencies that help them to grow uh, and and diversify their social capital, and and I would just add that you know in, in, in the work that we did um, in in some of the the, the local schools here in the Austin metropolitan area, in one school in particular, you know one of our sort of major takeaways right was was that we thought the issue of social capital was was absolutely critical right to sort of understanding um, block pathways uh, to opportunity beyond the things that kids had access to while they were were, were in school, in high school in particular. And so, in this sense, um, but we didn't see students in in our study, right? And these are typically low-income students, primarily Latino and African American, uh, coming in some cases coming from immigrant households. We didn't see them as lacking social capital um, or lacking uh, an interest in investing in social capital. But rather, what we saw, right, was 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 perhaps what we might call. Um, y- y- maybe a lack of diversity within the social networks and social capital that, that they were cultivating. And some of that has to do, right, with kind of social and spatial isolation, sort of the, the geography of where their communities and schools were located, and how those geographies and spaces in some ways kind of structure and facilitate uh, the kinds of networks uh, and the kinds of resources that one might be able to access. So but but I like this idea of thinking of the cultivation of social capital as a skill uh, that we certainly should be thinking about as we look forward uh, and look look forward to how do we begin to help um, you know develop you know pathways, uh, spaces, and environments that help support young people's ability to connect their learning to real world opportunity. I'm sorry, Ben, to have cut you off. Yeah,
2: this is really this is really generative. Um, so we've talked a bit about social capital, and I think I'd like to introduce another uh, skill, for lack of a better term. It, particularly when it comes to this metaphor of pathways, which is being able to uh, make visible the domain or kind of um, grasp and envision what the domain is that one is on a pathway towards, uh, and 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 I think that one thing that's um, I think one reason why we we've, we've struggled with the last mile as a metaphor, and we've also I think there's there's um, advantages and disadvantages to the metaphor of pathways, but one thing that's interesting about this notion of pathways is that. Uh, some uh, pathways we don't really, as you've already said, with precarity and fast capitalism, they're, they're sort of still being built, right? So, in new media arts, for example, we're, there's not a clear endpoint um, that's highly stabilized in terms of trajectories in video production or, um, you know, new media participation. Certainly, we know of some occupations, but it's a it's a kind of highly dynamic field. Um, so, in that sense, the kind of pathway doesn't totally hold up. We we've had a kind of an accidental but quite fortunate opportunity with the research we've been doing with the Connected Learning Network, where we worked with young people from four different sites that were all in different ways characterized as connected learning youth programs, but as it just turned out, um, some of them had a strong, two of them had a strong STEM focus in terms of what they were um, promoting. Uh, with young people and two of them had more of a new media arts focus and one of the differences that we saw in the participatory research we did with young people from both sites is that not surprisingly when we when when they did interviews we didn't do the interviews but when youth researchers um, asked questions about you know both opportunities and barriers along pathways the stem respondents and, and participants in these stem programs were able to articulate you know even though there were also barriers in the stem context they were kind of able to articulate what the what the domain looked like what they kind of needed to do in order to pursue these interests in science obviously they were highly mediated by access to higher ed but not just higher ed but lab experience and apprenticeships and when it came to the new media arts programs which were just as high quality I mean these were really outstanding um, places for young people to developing you know music recording videography and other kinds of skills the, the interviews they did around trying to understand what those pathways look like were just much, there's much less specificity. And it wasn't because the interviewees were somehow less knowledgeable. It was because the domain itself is, is less clear. And I think Julian, Sefton Green, who you mentioned before, has done some nice research about how aspirations are just linked to how visible the domain is. So to answer your question and kind of come back to this question about skills, I think there's something about... I mean, partly it's the domain itself, but this idea of being able to kind of grasp or, or, or map a trajectory in a domain is, is a pretty important one, particularly when we're talking about new media. Yeah, one thing I'd add to that that's, you know, you know interesting is
0: that, I'm kind of going back to this question of what's the right metaphor, which I think, you know, we've had a lot of, I think, good productive debate around, uh, you know, the idea of the last mile or pathways or trajectories in some cases, which, all of which are laden with a lot of meaning. Um, you know, I, I really like um, Chris Gutierrez's uh, frame of of role transformation um, that, like, w- what we're really aiming for is to have uh, youth be prepared uh, to continually transform their roles in relation to society as society is changing, which points also to this point that you're bringing up, Ben, about the kind of fluid nature. Of the fields themselves, Um, and really, again, like I I often like not not to overly look at my own experience because it is very uh, rarefied in a lot of respects. But more the kind of when I look at just professionals, you know, what professionals are constantly doing. It's not like they, you know they hit the last mile and they're done, like, but what professionals are constantly doing is going through a process of paying attention to the field, paying attention to their own learning, their own transformation, their own interests, where they see uh, problems, where they see opportunities, where how they see um, institutions uh, shifting, and being able to transform their role in relation to that in an ongoing way. And that's a, a highly dynamic process and one that, uh, in from a maybe skills or dispositions perspective, does kind of speak back to this idea of I hate this word entrepreneurism, but like somewhat of an assumption that um, you're not going to be finding something and be done at any point in one's life, and that that process of continual role transformation, not just individually, but of transforming the communities you're connected to, and if this can connect into some of what uh, Ben's looked into on the civic side, um, you know. That you're engaged in that process of collective transformation as well. Like, what's a collective um, uh, 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 way of, of of orienting towards these questions?
2: We got a um, comment from a, a listener. Uh, just a reference that was recommended that we might want we want to encourage people to check out uh, called the Social Structured World by Marina Gorbis at the Institute of the Future. So we just wanted to share some of the commentary we're seeing um, coming to us in the Q and A.
1: Yeah, and and Robbie, I, I like your last point. So, um, so we've been uh, my team here in Austin um, for the last year and a half or so. We've been doing a lot of sort of miniature ethnographies, looking at um, uh, you know young millennials, uh, twenty to, to, to twenty eight year olds, roughly, uh, and really sort of. Uh, you know, turn that into the spectrum You know, what it's like to sort of transition into this, this, this world of precarity um, You know, this, this world of, of, of fast capitalism and, and, and one of the things that, um, that, that we're sort of taking away From at least uh, some of the preliminary analysis That we're doing And which sort of renders the idea of, of the last mile Somewhat not, not as helpful as it, as it might otherwise be Is, is that there, there is this sort of constant need now to continually upgrade your skills, um, and we hear a lot, right, about about lifelong learning, and and some of this can become very abstract. It can become, you know, very uh, academic. But in the real world, right, it it has it has real practical uh, outcomes and requires uh, real practical kinds of skills and dispositions in terms of what it means to be both, uh, you know, what I would consider to, to be both a, a flexible earner and, and also a, a, a flexible learning. And what there is mean, there is this constant pressure um, to always, uh, you know, be upgrading your skills, uh, learning new skills, uh, being able to transition from one job to the next, one project to the next, indeed one organization to the next, right, because this idea of sort of long-term uh, secure employment, uh, you know, with, with, with one organization or with one company is in many respects, right, becoming of a kind of bygone era. And, and what it suggests, right, is that, that it requires a whole distinct kind of disposition in terms of how a generation is beginning to kind of grapple with, with that reality uh, and what it means in terms of developing right, both, both a, a range of skills but also a set of dispositions uh, that position one to really be able to effectively navigate, uh, you know, that, that degree and level of, of precarity. So, um, so I really like the, the, the points that, uh, that, that you both have made in this regard so so Ben I know that you've been you've mentioned this um, a, a couple of times um, it, you've been working uh, with, with with sort of youth-based uh, civic groups and, and and Rafi you've been working with 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 what I think are probably some youth uh, based civic groups but certainly a lot of kind of um, education and, and learning uh, based uh, kinds of groups that are working uh, with young people and so, so we sort of as as we you know continue to think about you know what it is that, that young people need right to sort of you know grapple with this world of uncertainty, um, I think we have each uh, kind of agreed that it's it's also important to think about um, what what the adults in their lives need right from from the perspective of of, of an educator from the perspective of of an educational organization or a, or a youth civic organization. So maybe we could spend a, a little bit of time uh, perhaps thinking about. Um, just the, uh, the, the, the kinds of support that, that, that teachers, educators, uh, civic practitioners need in terms of, of helping support young people uh, to link uh, their learning, their interests, their passions, their aspirations to real-world opportunity. Um, and I thought maybe you could each uh, perhaps draw from an experience or two or an anecdote or two from your own encounters, your own research, your own expertise uh, that might help us think about this a little bit.
0: Sure. So one of the things that um, we've seen in our research in the High Learning Network here in New York City is um, you have uh, these amazing organizations and uh, often incredibly talented and highly connected uh, teaching artists or informal science educators or you know youth social justice facilitators um, that, uh, you know, as part of their day-to-day work, just are constantly just putting new opportunities in front of their young people. Um, you know, kids in their programs, or a kid that has finished with their program, but they know that like that kid was really super interested in creative coding with like you know e-textiles, and they're like, oh, I heard about this fellowship at iBeam and you should totally pick it up, and it's great. And they're 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 constantly in this process of um, what we call in our research uh, brokering future learning opportunities. Um, you know, which we see as a subset of kind of mentorship practices um, and and in some respects uh, it's a ubiquitous practice this idea of, of, of bridging youth to something new but in another respect it's it's um it's something that not it, it is not formalized as a practice and that there aren't necessarily strong uh, social and institutional supports for if I'm a teaching artist or I'm an educator um, and you know one of the things I could say is that uh, to begin with, not every teaching artist or educator, whether it, or a teacher, a classroom teacher, sees their role as being about preparing future learning opportunities. Often, they think of their role as preparing youth for future learning opportunities, or as being about knowledge building or teaching. You know, I'm going to teach this kid how to, you know, how to code, or I'm going to teach them about, um, you know, scientific inquiry. But that question, that that question of of how do you have an educator rethink their role as not just being about knowledge building or preparing for future learning opportunities but actually being that, that, that node of social capital that actually bridges and brokers that is a, uh, a in some ways a unformalized area Um, in one respect so there's a lot that we don't know and hopefully Ben can shed light on some of this about like what does it actually look like what are the dynamics what is an effect once you even have it on our agenda what are effective practices there and what is it contingent upon Um, and a lot of what we assume in our research uh, and and from what we've seen in, in the field is a trusting relationship you need to have a trusting relationship between an adult and a young person in order for brokering to be effective. You need to have adults that know what the interests of youth are and youth that trust those adults that they're willing to take up an opportunity. And really importantly, you need to have a a more transparent uh, information ecology around opportunities. This is a big problem we've seen in the Hive Network here in New York that we're trying to work on, is that you have these amazing organizations and tons of opportunities out there. Um, And maybe it's this particular case in a place like New York or big urban centers that have a lot of uh, you know, uh, learning opportunities around but it's very, very challenging to have the right information to the right person in the right moment <laughs> um, so that they can actually broker that opportunity. And We find these weird supply-demand uh, challenges where you've got programs that are uh, just like waiting to have great youth in them and then you've got youth that want to have them but the, the mechanism through connecting them uh, is not is not often there and we've talked a lot about things like you know what does a Yelp for future learning opportunities look like or you know what is a you know a recommendation engine around like oh well this is coming up in your area and this is coming up in your area so, so we've we've been trying to think a lot about what are the uh, institutional supports the educator practices uh, and maybe even technological solutions around information transparency that might enable this to become a real priority um, I'd be curious to hear Ben on your side what you're seeing because I know you're doing some research directly on this issue as well.
2: Yeah, I, I want to pick up on this theme, um, uh, particularly of, of brokering and the uh, kind of networking. And I would say my general read, um, you know, my general read on the literature, both in the connected learning literature, but m- more broadly in the positive youth development and kind of out of school time literatures we as a scholarly community, as a research and practice community, have gotten pretty good at and pretty pretty clear understandings of what quality looks like when we talk about quality program experiences, quality, or you know, social organization of learning and, and you know, including trusting relationships like you were just talking about, Rafi. And what I think we need to do as, frankly, as educators and researchers, so I am a- answering Craig's question, is attend to some of this active organizing work that happens outside of the context of just providing a quality learning experience in video production or you know comic book creation or, or whatever it is um, so one of those terms that I think is a really helpful one is brokering um, I, I would also call you know people attention to a really nice article by uh, Kevin O'Connor and Annie Allen that looks at um, they kind of use a metaphor of learning at, at both ends of a trajectory. So a lot of the times the way we think about learning as educators is kind of mastering the particular domain or craft that, that we're looking at. But they do a case example of a poetry slam, an organization that engages young people in poetry slams and slam academy. And the active work that the program leaders and educators there are doing to kind of create a, an actual trajectory in this field and to create a, a way of being and a sort of public identity as a poet and so that being a high-quality educator in this context is not just about providing a compelling kind of learning experience for young people but actually doing active work to create opportunities for young people to leverage those learning experiences for future experiences within a community of poets etc so I like that imagery of kind of learning at both ends organizing at both ends of the trajectory meaning you're trying to kind of inculcate novices into an experience but also really doing work to um, Once people move out of that novice status and become skilled in a domain linking them to subsequent opportunity Brokering would be one example of that in some cases. You're actively producing Occupations or roles or modeling new professions Um, and that kind of that kind of field building and, and trajectory building is something I don't think we've adequately kind of understood empirically or theoretically and therefore, it's also pretty absent, I think, in our ways of thinking about evaluation, which I think still mostly look at questions of internal program quality or maybe some kind of long term outcomes. But I really think this is a project for both people embedded in practice and researchers to really try to understand this area of all this kind of active organizing work that's happening outside of the particular program experience.
0: Mm-hmm. Ben, I love that you brought up this example of. Um, these these capstone events, um, kind of end of program, big public displays. This is something that has been, um, you know, a regular feature of the youth uh, development world for a very long time, uh, especially as kind of the youth media movement kind of broke up, you know, uh, broke out, where you know youth are producing you know, artifacts and films and video games. Have you and obviously you want to show those off at some way. You know, what is what is media production without audience, right? Um, and what one of the things that we are seeing is really, really important is how do we take the... so those capstone opportunities to do a number of things and could do more. One of the things that they do is that they um, position young people publicly um, with uh, both the artifacts and the practices related to particular domains and so they're seen as, again, that uh, the interactive positioning and again you see themselves as that reflective positioning of their identity as belonging or being linked to those uh, practice-oriented domains. Um, The other thing that we see them the potential for them to do more is very strategically designing these capstone events um, to be direct opportunities for brokering. So I'll give an example which is about to happen uh, here in New York in two days, an event called uh, Emoticon which is the New York City uh, annual youth media and technology Festival, and it's an end of year capstone event that is open to uh, youth, digital media, and technology organizations from across the city. And there's all of these uh, organizations that participate, in their youth come, and they share their work. And there's, uh, you know, prizes, and there's professionals from these different fields that they network with, and uh, really, really powerful event. Hundreds of kids and and, and uh, you know professionals that join. And one of the things we're working on right now is a little bit of a design experiment: is how could we actually take that context? and really explicitly think about where are the moments in that day where youth can actually get directly connected to a summer opportunity because it's coming at this really critical juncture in between when a program and when a year-long program ends and when summer begins and often youth are hanging out and don't have opportunities and so you know where, where can we weave in through things like opportunity tables and you know adults that are going around kind of like with little cards where you can kind of sign up like, hey, I'm interested in X and this program is here and Y. Like, it's very small stuff, small routines that you can integrate in capstone events like this, as well as into the end of programs, uh, formal programs, where you can have these opportunities for adult uh, youth interactions where they actually are putting opportunities in front
1: of young people. So we, we have a question uh, from Twitter which is um, uh, directed to, uh, to Rafi and, and, and ben, ben certainly feel uh, free to respond if you'd like. Um, here's a question uh, to you Rafi. Um, so you, your note about brokering as being both ubiquitous uh, and not in institutions, and so the question is you know, how can uh, K-12 through teachers be supported uh, as connected learning brokers?
0: I think I'd mostly repeat a couple of things that i said. One is, again, we need to have uh, educators see themselves as brokers. The second is that we need to um, create uh, a solution for this problem of uh, transparency of opportunities, empower the educators with the opportunities that are out there in a given area as well as knowledge domain um, that they can put in front of the young people. And the third area is, that is, is a little bit of a research practice question, which is we need to learn more about <clears throat> what the actual practices are that are effective, what those routines, those pedagogical routines look like. You know, in, in areas of within program we've gotten quite good of like what does it look like for youth to get good feedback on their artifacts. Like we've learned a lot about that in the context of our program. We don't know a lot about what good practice routines are for this actual act of brokering and, and when it actually is successful or when it's not. And I know that Ben also has some examples um, from this.
2: In a, so real, real quick, um, you know, we've seen this uh, in some cases when it's linked for K 12 teachers, particularly at, at the secondary level. Um, when it's linked to like a senior paper or senior project, sometimes high schools will have that as a graduation requirement. And there's a the Tar River Writing Project has done some interesting work in North Carolina uh, where teachers are doing some of that brokering through something called Project Connect that people might um, be interested in checking out. I know that in Oakland Unified, um, Ellen Midah and Joe Khan and others there have been doing some work with senior projects related to civic engagement and civic learning that is also kind of designed around some of this brokering. So I'm, I'm not fully answering the question, but I do think we're starting to see some examples where there's a greater hybridity, um, meaning uh, kind of the, the, the school walls are, are the, the design is to, to bridge school and out of school and do some of that brokering to where the community institutions are.
1: Yeah, you know, I. Um you know this makes me think about um, the year that we spent in a, in a local area high school and um, and again you know that school was um, predominantly populated by kind of middle to low income uh, students from kind of resource constrained families and communities and one of the things that I, I think struck us about the, uh, the, the school in particular was some of the work that we did with, with, with some of the technology teachers who in fact saw themselves as, as brokers, right, Who, um, who and, and, and in fact, uh, you know, sort of deliberately took on that, that role uh, as 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 a node in their students sort of learning in social ecology that was sort of a, a unique opportunity to link those students uh, to other kinds of resources, other kinds of institutional agents, uh, you know, that weren't necessarily a, a part of the school. And, And I wonder to what extent, uh, the few things that come to mind for me, I wonder to what extent, uh, you know, this is becoming uh, something that more and more teachers and perhaps even more administrators in schools are beginning to think about, right, as we open up our idea of what learning and the future of learning might look like. So this idea of, of of schools being kind of very enclosed, very insular, um, very kind of disconnected from the outside world—you um, know—to what extent do we see um, uh, some slight evidence that, that that kind of ethos might be, uh, you know, reversing in, in some important way? And then I, I think for for our work, you know, we, we're also kind of pondering. how do schools, and not necessarily teachers, like an individual teacher or maybe an even a community of teachers, but how do schools and school districts see themselves, right, as, as brokering institutions? In other words, right, perhaps even rethinking what their role and position is within a respective community and, and how these issues are, are, are particularly urgent right and, and kind of resource constrained communities resource constrained schools where, where where the where the activities of brokering sort of making connections or connecting students to outside and external agents and resources in more affluent schools may be just a part of how they do business right it's it's simply how they operate and how they see themselves in their roles and to what extent uh, you know might we begin to develop an ethos a culture and a sort of institutional framework that begins to help uh, to, uh, a greater diversity of schools begin to uh, sort of undertake uh, these kinds of um, efforts on a much broader scale.
2: And I just would love to amplify that, Craig, um, both for schools and for different kinds of youth development organizations outside of school that, again, you know, I, I really do think we've spent, you know, maybe the last 10 or 15 years really getting a lot smarter collectively about um, how to how to design and implement a really high quality learning program, even though it doesn't mean we always do it. But I think we have some good resources there. But we have not yet really imagined this other piece. And I like how you're suggesting that it really be central to what the task is or what the enterprise is as an educator and as an, or as an educational institution, is to really be, be making brokering not just the thing you do at the end of the day, but somehow designed into the plan. I think that's, that's a new task for us.
0: And I think, you know, this, this kind of leads into an area that we plan on touching on around, uh, around policy and things that are beyond the level of individual educator practice or kind of uh, youth, youth engagement. Um, you know, and there's a couple of examples, um, <clears throat> again from here in New York, of uh, how schools have kind of come to think of themselves uh, as as brokering institutions, you know, a very famous example is a place called City as School. And City as School actually has, you know, relationships with, um, you know, handfuls of uh, community-based organizations museums and art centers and uh, development organizations where they're utilizing in the course of their coursework um, all of these community organizations as part uh, and parcel of the, the school experience. Uh, another example is something an initiative called uh, Digital Ready out of the Office of Postsecondary Readiness here in the New York City Department of Education and Digital Ready does a, a whole, has a whole host of, initi- of initiatives around digital learning and personalized learning but one of the things that they have a really strong focus on is what they call uh, ELO's, Extended Learning Opportunities and how do they create a system where their schools um, uh, that are participating in the digital digital ready uh, initiative, which is a small pilot. Um, how do those schools get uh, formalized relationships to community based organizations uh, that can be kind of ongoing? And and I think you know the real uh, one of the weird kind of tensions and maybe a weird uh, thing that will push schools, um, unfortunately, in some ways, to think of themselves as brokers is that you know with things like access to the arts. During the school day, even physical activity, recess being cut, you know, gym being cut, that you, you you're you, you're probably going to start seeing initiatives. Also, combine this with the kind of move towards competency-based education, and maybe the the, the dreaded B word of badges, um, where you start to have a situation where schools are starting to maybe recognize learning that they're not able to provide in their own context. Um, uh, accredit it um, you know through you know high quality programming that they recognize is happening at a place like maybe a YMCA when it comes to physical activity uh, or uh, an arts organization that does something that is very connected to uh, you know media production and writing um, where they can start to have students receive credit for those things and in the process of doing so they're actually um uh, increasing youth social capital and the access to various networks across uh, a given environment in a given uh, you know city or, or, or region um, and I think that's you know it's tension because we don't want to promote more you know cuts to the to the arts and uh, things like phys- phys ed or you know uh, civic opportunities in schools but uh, in a certain respect the way that that is those cuts are intersecting with The move towards competency-based and maybe towards ideas around micro-credentialing—you can see a little bit of a convergence here about how these institutions might move to a brokering kind of orientation.
1: Yeah, we have a a question uh, that's also come from um, our um, someone who's who's listening and watching in, and and again, thank you for these these questions. This is this is awesome. Let me ask the question, and and perhaps we can sort of think about it, but I I think in some ways the question is sort of related to how we wanted to end this conversation, right, which was just sort of speculating about uh, the different kinds of policy, sort of initiatives and interventions, both in in formal and informal settings uh, that might uh, begin either to uh, equip institutions and educators and educational organizations. To be more effective in linking them people to opportunity uh, and likewise helping them people to kind of cultivate the skills and dispositions that are increasingly uh, you know, required uh, in this, uh, this, this, this world and economy of uncertainty. So the question is, is this: can you all share some strategies for how people, educators, researchers, uh, even those in policy, uh, can create the conditions for more equitable engagement and practice across various domains and settings? Um, And again, I think this is somewhat related to um, the the, the, the kind of note that we wanted to end on, and that was sort of maybe looking forward and and sort of asking, you know, what what can decision makers, uh, institutions do uh, to perhaps foster environments and and pathways that that really facilitate these kinds of opportunities that we're discussing.
2: Well, uh, I'll go ahead and speak up. and share one example. I've been uh, speaking from two perspectives, uh, one again, the, the youth organizing kind of field and then the other, the digital media and learning, and they often come together. But coming out of the youth organizing context, youth organizing and activism context, Sean Ginwright, uh, who's at San Francisco State, had a great paper um, on, on, you know, building a leadership pipeline of young uh, people of color and social justice activists because the youth organizing community has been really asking itself some of these same questions about pathways as this DML community has been. Um, and the two areas are in many ways, have a lot of similarities in, in that they're not highly stabilized kind of occupational fields, but um, but there's a lot of young people who kind of getting excited, getting mobilized, highly skilled, highly trained, coming out of high school, or coming out of high school age, and who are looking at ways of continuing those pathways. Um, Again, whether it's in kind of political organizing, or using new media arts, or some combination of both, which we see quite a lot of also. Um, And I just want to mention one example, and then I'll I'll turn it over to my colleagues. But um, in that political organizing area, there, there has been some intentional efforts to really build build partnerships with higher education, both community colleges and four-year colleges. And there's a group called the Community Learning Pathways um, that Sean Ginwright highlights in his report. Again, that's called Community Learning Pathways that is really trying to create certificate programs and or different kinds of training programs that specifically focus on community organizing and recognize it as an actual field that has a kind of professional quality to it. And that work that they're doing is 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 really again about field building, about building the road, um, building the pathway as young people are kind of finding their finding their way into it.
0: Yeah, you know, one one thing I'd say you know on this general question of like how do we move sort of everyone into a position where we can have these conditions for equitable engagement across across settings. You know, and that, that, that key word of across settings is kind of the nut that we're cracking here. You know, every setting is oriented towards its own, you know, when you get into, like, organizational theory, you know, it, you get into questions of, like, how does the organization reproduce itself, basically? How does it stay, stay alive and stay relevant? And, and these questions of how do you have an organization that's focused not on its own uh, setting, but on on other settings, you know, in some ways is 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 complicated from, from an organizational theory perspective. But you know, this is where we get into the possibilities of um, of collective impact work uh, and kind of a lot of work that's happened in the civic space around collective impact, as well as you know, going back to what Ben was saying about youth organizing and and actually things like why youth participatory action research. You, know, you can envision a, a city scale ecosystem. In which uh, many organizations, including schools, including social service organizations, including informal learning organizations, um, are working together with this vision towards collective impact of creating these very strong uh, ecologies where handoffs and lane changes and you know are, are just like constant. It's the norm. How do you actually have ensure that that's relevant? You actually have young people that are also involved in this collective impact work uh, through mechanisms and methodologies from youth participatory action research and and you know effectively You can think of it as a mass civic organizing where whole cities and all stakeholders can kind of come together. And I can say this is not easy work; it's not an easy vision by any means. But I think you know uh, one of the reasons that I'm so interested in you know the work of Hive Learning Networks in New York and and, you know increasingly nationally and globally is that they do represent these uh, you know not the only but a model for these kinds of collective impact networks. Um, where you can mobilize a whole range of stakeholders and actors to get to this point of organization where brokering uh, uh, future opportunities can become uh, uh, a lot more viable through coordinated action. And it's not easy, but I think it's a really worthwhile uh, goal for us to hold as a field to figure out what it means to do this and then also to bring in like okay we actually have to ask questions and research about all the practices and I think some of the work that um, has been happening from uh, 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 Tony Lewis Gomez, uh, Paula Mayhew and a couple of others on what they call networked improvement communities where it takes a real approach of principled inquiry and kind of using improvement science to have mass communities that are massively mobilized in collective action orient, orientation have shared measurement across all of them where you can start to identify very quickly what's working and what's not adapt practices from one network to another network and you know have this accelerated learning um, environment so anyway uh, I think that there, I packed in a lot there but I think that there's there's a vision that's possible for us to move towards um, that involves uh, everyone, um, uh, allowing us to have more equitable access across settings uh, for learning opportunities.
1: Ben, do you have any final thoughts on, on this or other kind of related questions? I just, um, I'm really excited that DML is, is really focusing our
2: attention on uh, this question of pathways and where we head um, as we develop these kinds of expertise and skills. And I look forward to keeping up this conversation at the conference in LA. Uh, in a couple of weeks. Thanks, thanks, Rafi, and thanks, Craig. Uh, it's really been a great conversation.
1: Yeah, no, I've taken uh, like two pages of notes here, and uh, and and absolutely plan to go back and um, and listen to what you two had to say. Not necessarily what I had to say, but um, um, no, this is this is this is quite generative, and um, I do anticipate that there will be panels, sessions. Um, I know my team in Austin is planning on doing a, a workshop at DML kind of around these questions and it's really about trying to bring together people to have you know this, this, this type of conversation right? And, and how do we really begin to sort of think about you know cultivating um, you know, new approaches, new paradigms, new dispositions, um, new insights uh, expertise to to really to tackle this question, which I think is is perhaps one of the most urgent ones uh, of our time, and 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 I think DML is um, you know just just so so poised and positioned, you know, to be able to uh, contribute uh, in a very important way uh, to what uh, will certainly be uh, a kind of a critical national and and even global conversation as these issues only begin to accelerate uh, in a time of uncertainty. Um, let me say uh, again, thank you, uh, uh, Ben and Rafi, for um, for a, a very, um, I think, rich and enlightening, um, you know, conversation here. Um, that is, you know, again, part of just uh, kind of kickstarting a lot of the things that we anticipate happening at at DML in a couple of weeks or so. Um, let me also say uh, that there will be a full video recording uh, of this webinar available uh, immediately on www.connectedlearning.tv. Um, and with other curated content um, uh, and, and the way in which you can share uh, this uh, with, uh, with your networks. Um, finally, let me add that this wraps up the fourth and final webinar of this May 2015 uh, series highlighting themes uh, from the DML 2015 conference, uh, but please absolutely feel free to keep the energy going on uh, Twitter uh, using the hashtag, uh, hashtag DML2015 and hashtag uh, ConnectedLearning. Um, you can also uh, follow uh, Ben, uh, his his uh, Twitter handle, and also Robbie's Twitter, Twitter handle are there on screen. Uh, and you can um, also follow uh, the, the, the Twitter handle of, of the Connected Learning Alliance as well. Uh, if you found this conversation helpful, uh, please share it with your network. And if you would like to know more about upcoming webinars from Connected Learning TV in 2015, Uh, please visit us at www.connectedlearning.tv and sign up for the email and newsletter. Uh, Thanks again, everyone, and uh, we're absolutely looking forward to continuing this conversation and seeing some of you in Los Angeles uh, in just a couple of weeks. Uh, Have a great day.
0: Thanks so much, Craig.